0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Jacqueline Masters, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 61, where we're talking about books from Australia and the surrounding archipelago. Uh, Well, hello, Jacqueline. Welcome. This is your first podcast. It is. I'm very
1: excited to be here.
0: I am so thrilled to talk about Australian books today. I mean, that was pretty much first on our list, I think. It was. (laughs) It's
1: very close to my heart, being Australian.
0: Yeah, and uh, we have a lot of books that we've been looking at, and we've been talking about this episode for several months now. Yes. And researching and reading all of the things. (laughs) Um, But before we get into that, um, I think it's time to talk about the Stella Prize as our big
1: news item of the episode. Oh, yes. So the Stella Prize is a it's a major literary prize in Australia for women's writing, uh, and it covers both fiction and nonfiction. And it's been running since 2013. So it still feels quite young in the kind of literary prize world so this year there's quite an even split between the fiction and non-fiction titles I think there's six fiction and five non-fiction um, across the 12 shortlisted books but yeah it's a very exciting list and it's been great to see all the buzz on social media people excited to read books by Australian women yeah
0: and I'm always excited to see the Stella prize long list because a lot of them are authors I've never heard before
1: A lot of them are authors that are very new to me as well. And I think that's, it's exciting to see sort of old favorites celebrated, but also, you know, coming across new authors that you're excited to read too. So I think that's a good thing.
0: So listener, if you're listening to this on the first day it goes out, uh, that's March 6th. So this Friday, March 8th, uh, the shortlist will be announced for the Stella Prize. So we will be discussing the shortlist in our next episode on Australian Lit. And then on Tuesday, April 9th, the winner of the Stella Prize will be announced um, in-, in Melbourne, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, I think it's quite appropriate it's being announced on March 8th because I think that's International Women's Day. Yeah, It's kind of a very fitting date for them. It is. It is, and
0: there's a lot of amazing writers. I remember um, I discovered Michelle de Kretzer last year ah, because of the prize, and I I love her so much. Well, she's one of the judges now, I think. Yes. Yes, which is really cool to see. Yeah. It's interesting because one of the critiques of the prize has been that historically a lot of the... Long-listed and winners of the prize have been white. And and this year, there are actually a lot of white authors, but they made a note in their judges' report um, about that
1: situation. So one of the things I commented on was that they wanted more representation of um, otherness and diversity, you know, from the publishing industry. Um, And I don't think that was represented in the entries. So I guess their long list is reflecting that in a way.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, lists like this, you know, they can only long list books that exist. And if publishers are not actively seeking out and publishing diverse authors, then they can't win prizes. And this is what 50,000 Australian dollars goes to the winner.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah.
0: This is gives writers independence and helps promote their careers. So if you want diverse authors to be able to have the means to do that, then they need to be able to enter and win awards. And it's just pointing to a systematic problem within Australian literature and really a lot, most Western uh,
1: publishing industries have this problem. Yeah, absolutely. I doubt it's unique to Australia, but I think it's, you know, particularly comes out when we look at long lists like this.
0: Yeah, so I'm interested to see what happens with that, um, with Australian Lit. So we'll be talking more about Australian literature and some of the issues surrounding it in our discussion episode next time. But the last thing we want to cover was discussing availability, because we're going to be talking about a lot of books today, and we want to make sure you know where you can get your hands on them.
1: Yeah, and I think this is something that I only really became really aware of when I started living overseas. So I moved to the U.S. about a year ago, and I noticed that, I one, I couldn't just walk into my local library and look up a book and find it on a shelf when it was by an Australian author. So I thought, okay, surely the bookstores will have access to them. Well, no, I didn't find Australian titles in bookshops either, so I have to... Look to places like Book Depository, or Amazon often has a lot of ebooks avail available for purchase by a Kindle. So you can often find books that way, but it does take a bit of digging, and it's not always the most straightforward process to try and you know find just how to read these books. It's very hard to find copies of them if you're an international reader. And you're always very self-conscious
0: about trying to purchase, books in the most proper legal way. And sometimes when you have books from other countries, they're often pirated or different things and you want to make sure you're doing the right thing. So we just had a discussion about recently about a book that I was looking at and I was like, I, I think this is the right, (laughs) (laughs) I think this is the right one. It was, thank goodness. I ended up looking up a bit more, but, um, there's always that concern. And, you know, Mm. I did not realize that there were not a lot of Australian women being published in america really until um i was talking we were talking with emily biddo a couple years ago so she won uh, the stella prize in 2015 and it came out in the united states in 2017 i believe and she was talking about australian literature and so autumn and i started looking it up and we realized that there just aren't a lot of aussie books published in the united states unless they're like really Mm -hmm. big names
1: yeah, like I think a lot of people will be familiar with, like, for example, Jane Harper had her book um, released last week in the U.S. Um, so names like hers will be very familiar to people, but but I think particularly diverse authors, uh, lesser known authors from Australia, are sometimes a lot harder to find, if not impossible to find, for purchase over in the U.S.
0: Yeah. So today we're going to tell you where each of the books that we'll be talking about can be found, so that if you are living in the United States um, in particular, that you will be able to find them. Um, If we know where it's being published through different ways, like Book Depository, that means wherever you are in the world, then you could go get it. So we're going to try to make this as accessible as possible, so that as many people as possible can read all of these amazing Aussie authors.
1: Yes. (laughs) We're doing the hard work for you. Yes.
0: (laughs) All right. So that is our intro. Uh, so Jacqueline, you have our first pick.
1: Yeah. So the first book that uh, we're going to be talking about in our discussion episode is Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman. And that's out by Small Beer Press here in the US or in Australia. It's published by Hachette Australia. Okay, So Terra Nullius is Claire G. Coleman's debut novel, and uh, she's actually releasing her second novel later this year in about September 2019. There's no release date confirmed, but it's very exciting. So Terra Nullius is a speculative fiction work, and it's retelling a... Australian colonial history from an alternative perspective and giving that kind of science fiction slant to it all. And it's a story that's told through a range of different characters. There are a number of Indigenous characters and there's also some white sort of settler characters and very relevantly to our discussion about the Stella Prize, Terranelli's actually got shortlisted for the 2017 prize.
0: Yeah, you know, and we shortlisted uh, this book for the twenty eighteen Readingman Award as well because it was just a book unlike anything that we'd ever read, and it just has so much going on, and it's very hard to talk about because halfway through the book something happens and the whole book changes.
1: Mm, it's very hard to talk about without spoiling it, <laughs> but <Yes>. we won't. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, and I, I really love the her storytelling. She's a magnificent storyteller and the way she uses speculative elements is so natural. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel, you know, um, overdone or there's no stress about trying to world build. She just does it so naturally throughout the book. And um, I really appreciate. What she did for the American edition was is there's a Q&A in the back. And so I thought that was great to have an interview and then um, for American readers, they understand where she's coming from and like her process.
1: So I really like that she's trying to give us, uh, international readers a more holistic um, vision of what Australian history is and what actually happened and um, not the sort of traditional history that gets told in textbooks.
0: Yeah and I think that's just so important this discussion of a colonization and how we view colonization needs to change because it's still active today it's still having an impact on thousands and thousands of people's lives not just in Australia but across the world and that we especially as you know white european heritage citizens of these different countries need to understand that you know th- this is a huge issue
1: and we need to be more respectful of that so what I think she does really effectively in Terra Nullius is is um, engaging with her own identity and um, bringing her own voice's perspective to this. And I think it's so vital to that discussion to get an exploration of the legacy of colonialism from an own voice's perspective.
0: Yeah, I think this also, you mentioned, you know, that this is an own voice's discussion. And I think that's so important because oftentimes the minority party is often defined by the party in power or the side in power, and they're told what they should or should not feel or think or whatever about their situation. But in reality, it is the party in power that needs to stop and and listen um, to these groups. And in this case, I think it's important to listen to the Aboriginal voices of Australia and, and understand where you know, Claire G. Coleman and her family and her community is coming from. And I think that's just so important. And I think we've seen uh, here in North America a, a bit of a Native American renaissance in literature. Uh, there's so many new voices coming onto the scene, and there's hope that this will expand to more. And, and it's also great to see that in other countries as well. So I would love to see something like that also happen in Australia. Claire is doing such amazing work. I cannot wait to read what she has
1: next. Yes, absolutely. And read the books that she's listed in her um, author's note as well. Some great recommendations in there.
0: Yes. So I think it's probably obvious to most people that this is our discussion, one of our discussion picks. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll be
1: talking about this more, a bit more in our, our next episode. So that was Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman. So Kendra, I believe you have the next book that we're going to be talking about
0: right so i wanted to make sure that we included new zealand in this discussion um and so my first pick is can you tolerate this essays by ashley young and this is out from riverhead here in the u.s and this came out in 2018 and this is her first collection of essays she's actually a poet so she's very successful in her poetry and different things, and so she came out with this collection of essays, and it won the Ockham New Zealand Book Award for General Nonfiction in 2017. Oh, wow. So she per- brilliant. she's apparently <laughs> good at all of the things.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a very diverse kind of range of writing to be across, too.
0: Yeah, and you no, know, I've seen a lot of poets go to fiction, but this is one of the first ones where I've seen a poet go to nonfiction.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. It is,
0: and so when you think of New Zealand, Jacqueline, what are what are some authors that come to mind?
1: Oh, I think probably one of the most notable for me is uh, Eleanor Catton, who wrote *The Luminaries*. There was a Man Booker winner. Was is that right? Right, twenty thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I loved that book. It's it's a it's a tome. <laughs> um, it took me a while to get through, but I um, mean, her storytelling and her writing are just brilliant. I loved it.
0: Yeah. So there's Eleanor Catton, and then before that. Was Catherine Mansfield in the 1920s? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, it's <laughs>
0: quite a jump. <laughs> yes, yes. So, there really needs to be a better representation of women's literature in New Zealand as well. It, this is, seems to be a universal experience. So one of the reasons I want to talk about this book is because whenever, especially you ask Americans, you know, what New Zealand author, they would say immediately say Catherine Mansfield. Uh, She was the only author Virginia Woolf was ever jealous of, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, Ali Smith has a great lecture on both Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield and their friendship, which was also competitive.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: I will link that in the show notes so that... People can go check that out if they would like. Um, But the essay that one of the essays I really loved in this book was how Ashley Young has this dialogue with Catherine Mansfield. Catherine Mansfield is like the classic author. If you're going to study New Zealand literature, because she's pretty much one of the only, you know, most well-known ones because she did move away from New Zealand um, and met all of these really famous British people. And so there's an essay in here called Catherine Would Approve. And it's how the author got a job at Catherine Mansfield's birthplace. Oh, wow. And Yes. And it was sort <laughs> of like on a whim. And it was this really weird circumstances. And so she sits and she's surrounded by Catherine Mansfield's childhood home. And she writes, you know, Catherine Mansfield writes a lot about the childhood home. So it's almost like she is giving a physical manifestation of how she as a New Zealand author has to interact with Catherine Mansfield's work
1: mm.
0: and how that's a lot of pressure. I mean, when you only have like basically one author now too, in the last decade that are internationally mm. famous in literary circles, it's like, okay, well you have mm. to address that. Right. Absolutely. Um, so there's a quote here that I wanted to read. So the Ashley is at a, a party, and she's talking about Catherine Mansfield, and I believe it's like a coworker kind of thing. And so the guy she's talking to says, but Catherine Mansfield has always been so, he paused a while, seeming to struggle, big. She's always been at the forefront of her literary consciousness. When I was growing up, there was always a sense of how big she was. He turned back to his notes and was emboldened. She helped to revolutionize the English short story and left behind a body of work that is as sharp, intriguing, and fresh as the day it was written. At the end of the party, uh, Ashley Young comes back and says, Perhaps worse, though, was that I no longer loved Mansfield's stories as I had before. Having heard the tour guides reference them over and over, there was Daniel shouting as he pointed at the doll's house, and if you look inside, you will see the little lamp, and stories seem not to belong to me now. People had crowded inside them and were digging between the words for something new to hold up and turn in the light. I couldn't hold them close to me without feeling someone looking over my shoulder, without noticing the empty cans thrown in the gully. I think that that is a discussion of how it's almost as if everyone else has claimed Catherine Mansfield as their own. And now New Zealand authors are like, well, actually, she's ours, but they feel crowded out almost. Mm, That's an interesting um, one to unpack. Yes. Mm. And I think that it's always difficult when you have such a prominent, you know, whether it be in the United States, you might have a prominent author from your particular state and they're like always comparing you to that person. Or So I really appreciate her addressing that. Um, obviously this entire essay collection is not all about that, but Uh, She also talks about her family and growing up and what's like being uh, a woman from New Zealand and her family's experiences traveling abroad. And there's just a lot of different topics in this collection. So I really enjoyed seeing an insight into that. And because she's a poet, her style is very different. She uses a lot of fragments and she uses a lot of um, punctuation for rhythm, which is interesting. So I think that if you like essays or you want to read more about New Zealand or read more New Zealand authors, this is definitely a great one to pick up.
1: Mm. Does she narrate the audiobook version herself? I don't know. Um, I don't oh. remember. Because um, that's always very cool when you, particularly when it's an international book, you you want to read it in the sort of accent and voice of the the author.
0: Yeah, I was thinking earlier if the author had a New Zealand accent and then I realized I I can't
1: tell the difference unless they're like right beside each other like if i heard one and the other i could there's certain words i feel like that new zealand and australian accents do sound very similar to international people like i guess but there's certain expressions like um the number six for example will sound very different in a new zealand accent
0: i think it's a lot like american accents and canadian accents yeah yeah
1: yeah Yeah. I, i think that's a fair comparison yeah
0: So that was Can You Tolerate This? Essays by Ashley Young. And you have our next pick, Jacqueline.
1: Yeah, so the next book that I want to talk about is Beautiful Revolutionary by Laura Elizabeth Woollett. And that's out in Australia at the moment um, from Scribe. And I believe they're also publishing the U.S. edition that is coming out in May. You can actually already buy this on Book Depository. And I bought it on my Kindle via Amazon. So if you do want to read it, it is available if you're in North America. Um, But this is a really interesting one, particularly for North American readers, because it's a cult narrative. Um, It is a work of fiction, but it's loosely based on a real life cult, the Jim Jones and the People's Temple, which might be more well known to people here. It's not one that was overly familiar to me. So I went into it quite blind in that regard, but we're following Initially, a young married couple that sort of becomes, you know, immersed in the world of this cult and how they're sort of lulled into the 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 leader's spell in a way. And we see the, the slow decline of the cult or maybe fast decline, depending on your perspective, but um, we watch the decline of the cult up until this really... Um, quite famous massacre, um, the Jonestown Massacre. Um, So it, it might be quite obvious from the way I'm describing it, but I'd say there are quite significant trigger warnings for like violence and assault um, in this book.
0: I found books about cults just extremely interesting because it's like a look at this very isolated kind of community
1: situation. Yeah, I think what's different about this, and I felt like it was less of a... A history of the cult itself and it was more of a a perspective of, you know, these different people and how they individually became part of the cult and their own experience and less of a sort of sweeping generalisation about what, uh, what it was like for everyone. Um, and she covers a range of different perspectives. Like one of the things that I thought she did the best was how many different people she covers. So apart, apart from this couple that we start from, you also get to hear from... Uh, people in the security detail and people in the leadership and family of people in the cult so there's a lot happening there there is a lot happening in this book but it's just so fascinating and so beautifully written Well,
0: it sounds amazing and I've heard you talking about it um for a few months now I don't I don't typically find myself drawn to cult books but this one really sounds like it it
1: could be right up my alley yeah I'd definitely give it a go I think there's so much in it that's just a brilliant character study that I think will attract people apart from just the the cult aspect too.
0: And you mentioned that this book was by Laura Elizabeth Woollett. Uh, is this her first book coming out or does she have other work out as well?
1: Yes, yeah, so this is her debut novel, I believe, but she's also got a short story collection out called The Love of a Bad Man. And if you want to get a little snapshot of what Beautiful revolutionaries like, one of the stories within that collection called Marceline actually covers the same subject matter. So it's looking at the Jonestown cult. And I guess it's, it's giving you a bit of insight without maybe picking up the whole novel if you're worried about some of those triggering aspects to it.
0: I feel like short story collections are a great way to get an idea of the author's style. And if you and the author's work will mesh really well for a longer work,
1: Yeah. I feel like because it's a short story collection as well, and because you're getting a lot of insight into sort of the the darkness in her writing, um, you can do that in smaller doses. Whereas I think when you're reading the novel, you're kind of consumed in that world a bit more. So that was Beautiful Revolutionary by Laura Elizabeth Woollett. And we'll be back with more of our picks for
0: Australia Month after a word from our sponsor. sponsor of this episode of reading women is our reading women store
2: if you didn't know we have a store on etsy where we sell blind book dates our brand new enamel logo pins reading women award kit seal kits bookmarks
0: and i think that's everything (laughs) uh recently we have restocked all of our blind book dates and so we have so many titles that i am thrilled to share with everyone yes we work very hard to make sure that
2: our book date store is filled with a wide range of books including books that were published within the last year mysteries thrillers historical fiction all kinds of different genres and categories and then we also ask for your three
0: most recent favorite reads to make sure that we pair you with the perfect book match And we can also look at your Goodreads. Uh, We also do gifts, So if you have that uh, hard to buy for person in your life, but you know they enjoy reading, uh, we are happy to help you out. Or if you're working on the Reading Women Challenge for 2019 and you're looking for a recommendation, we're happy to give you one of those for any of the prompts that we have for the Reading Women Challenge. And this month, everything in the Reading Women store is 15%
2: off with the code READINGWOMEN15. So for the entire month of March, you can get your own logo pin or a blind book date for yourself or a friend
0: for 15% off of the listed price. Okay. And this is actually the first time that our new enamel pins have been on sale. So if you've been waiting to get one for yourself
2: or for a friend, now is the time to do it because they are going to be 15% off this month only.
0: Right, so limited time. So definitely check that out. You can find a link to our store on our website, readingmoonpodcast.com, or you can just check the link in your show notes.
1: And so, Kendra, did you want to talk about the last book that's actually our discussion book as well?
0: Right, so our second discussion book is going to be Her Father's Daughter by Alice Pung, and this is by Black Ink. Uh, and that's actually in Australia and in the United States, it's by the same company. so. Definitely check that out. I got an audiobook off Audible, but it's also available as an ebook and in print here in the United States. If you live in the UK, I believe you can get it on Book
1: Depository. There's a lot of different formats.
0: (laughs) So basically, whatever format you want to consume this book in, you can find it. (laughs) Um, And that's excellent because this is an amazing book. And I picked this book because I was looking up the author and I was looking at her work it's a, it's a nonfiction book about Alice Pung and her father, and it's told in third person, and there'll be sections at the top that say uh, father, and what, then, you know, there'll be you know, the text, and then there'll be a break, and it'll be like daughter. So it's broken up from those two perspectives in third person, but it is a nonfiction book. So it also won a prize, the Western Australia Premier's Award for nonfiction when it came out. And this is not her first memoir. She wrote a memoir that focuses more on the women in her family earlier in her writing career. Uh, but I picked this one up just by the description. And I still want to read the other one as well, because I was so impressed with this book because I had never read Alice Punk before.
1: Yeah, I think I'd, I'd read one of her essays that she had in a earlier collection uh, called Joyful Strains, but she's an author that I kept seeing pop up across a few different genres.
0: And what's very interesting about Alice Pung is that she's writing this, as I said, in third person. It's almost like she's telling these parallel stories of these two family members. So all of Alice Pung's grandparents are Chinese, and then her parents are born in Cambodia, and then her parents immigrated to Australia. And so she has these three different locations that are part of her identity. And throughout the book, she goes and looks at those different locations, but also she goes back into her father's memories and looks at his experience uh, during the genocide of the Pol Pot regime um, in Cambodia.
1: It's a really unique way it's told. I haven't seen a memoir that kind of does that, like interrogates um, like a personal experience in third person. So I thought it was really clever.
0: Yeah, I've never read a memoir in third person before. Yeah. And I found that that was very effective because it gave her some distance and how she talked about the the father and the daughter's stories. Because the daughter is being a child of immigrants, is struggling with her identity and being Australian, but also being um, Chinese Cambodian. and what that means for her and like be embarrassed by different things uh, that her parents do and not understanding uh, her parents really. And then her dad, when they go back to visit his family um, in Cambodia, is embarrassed by his daughter's Westernness. And it's almost like, you know, these parallel journeys of identity um, through where her dad has traveled and
1: been and where his family's from. Yeah. And she also looks at sort of their experience as migrants to Australia as well and speaking a little bit to that experience which is totally different again so she does so much in this book and really tackles a lot of different different things I thought
0: one of the things I found most moving is the story of how Alice got her name Uh, her dad named her Alice because when he got to Australia after you know surviving the genocide in Cambodia he thought that Australia was a wonderland and so he named his daughter Alice that's gorgeous, isn't it? <laughs> it just makes you want to cry, doesn't yeah, it? It's I, beautiful. And I think that her trying to understand her father, that this is in many ways a love letter to her father, but also an acknowledgement that she still has things to learn and it's like a progressive, that the relationship is like a moving, living thing that progresses and changes over time.
1: Mm, that's a really good way of putting it, actually.
0: And so... As we mentioned, this is going to be our second discussion book. Uh, so we'll be discussing it along with Tara in our second episode about Aussie Lit. Uh, but I am so excited to talk about this book. And I have all of the book darts and underline things in this <laughs> book because um, it is it is really great. So that is Her Father's Daughter by Alice Pung. All right. So now it's time for our guest spot. And today we're talking to Winnie, who is from Malaysia. And she's going to recommend some books that she has read recently. So uh, take it away, Winnie.
3: I'm Winnie, uh, Winnie Lou, and I have a bookstagram called The Lit Malaysian, and it's at The Lit Malaysian. I used to live in Melbourne, Australia for eight years. And since then, I've been really interested in books from Australia and especially books by Malaysians who used to live in Australia. And one of my book picks today is from, yeah, from a person who is Malaysian and is living in uh, Australia. The first book I'm going to mention is Eat First, Talk Later by Beth Yap. The subtitle on the cover says, A Memoir of Food, Family, and Home. And this book It is that and so much more. It's a memoir about Beth's early life in Malaysia, persuading her aging parents to take a road trip around Malaysia in the early 2000s, I believe. But this book is also Beth talking about political and social aspects of Malaysia, and she takes that and compares it to her life in Sydney, where she resides. And this book title is Eat First, Talk Later. This book uh, also intersperses aspects about Malaysian culture and Malaysian food. She uses that to sort of tie in her journey throughout this memoir. And I stumbled upon this book accidentally in a bookshop in Melbourne because the title sort of drew me in because I used I really like food and memoirs about food. And I sort of thought this book was just going to be her sort of traveling around Malaysia and or Australia talking about the different things she's going to eat. But When I started reading it, I realized that this was just so much more. This talked about the political constructs of Malaysia, where the government's pretty much one-sided and how she, because her family's Chinese-Malaysian, which is one of the minorities in this country, and she talks about how her her parents sort of send her and her siblings overseas so that they could have a quote-unquote better life why this book is special to me is because Beth's journey reflects my own journey. I'm also Chinese Malaysian like Beth and my parents also sent me overseas to Australia to uh, pursue a higher education and one of the reasons why that is is because it was quite hard for us uh, Chinese Malaysian students to get into a local university back then. I'm not sure about how it is now, but it is the generalized belief that we're going to end up getting a better life and better opportunities if we study overseas and bring that back with us when we move back to Malaysia or to our home countries. So I saw a lot of myself in this memoir. There's another thing about this book is that in the way it's written, it sort of jumps all over the place. So the author could be talking about Malaysian culture in one sort of paragraph, and then she jumps to another aspect of her life or her parents' life. And it sort of can take a bit of getting used to, but once you get into the flow of things, it makes it a fast and riveting read. And it took me a few days to get through it because it is a big book, but if you're interested in Malaysian culture and the Malaysian diaspora in other countries, especially in Australia, where there's a pretty large Malaysian community because of people like me and people like Beth who've uh, migrated there, then yeah, you should pick this book up. It also features an interesting aspect of Australian culture from a different sort of perspective. And that was Eat First, Talk Later by Beth Yap. The second book that I've picked is The Trauma Cleaner, One Woman's Extraordinary Life in Death, Decay and Disaster by Sarah Krasnostein. This book is a nonfiction uh, book that follows uh, Sandra Pankhurst, who is a trauma cleaner. And she goes into homes of people who have either died or have been uh, or something untowards happened to them or they're just physically unable to clean their homes because of mental illness or other circumstances like that. And this book also talks about Sandra's life um, because she's a transgender woman. Before that, she grew up in a really abusive household. There's a trigger warning for violence and mentions of rape um, because this book does touch on aspects of Sandra's life where she recollects these moments to the author who follows Sandra around as she cleans these homes and interviews her, essentially. What made me pick this book is, first of all, the cover. I've got the edition by Text Publishing. Uh, I think it's the Australian edition. And it's an orange glove that's sitting in the middle of the cover and it, it instantly like draws your attention to it. And second of all, when I picked it up and started reading it, I discovered that it's so compelling. The author really, really covers Sandra's life as authentically as she can. It sort of makes you see that there are people living in these houses that look so normal on the outside. But when the author goes in, she makes us as well as she realizes that there are hidden aspects to people's worlds that none of us really see unless we're put in a situation like Sandra's, where she sort of steps in and helps them out or steps in and does jobs where no one else has the strength to do, if that makes sense. Like, it's written beautifully as well. And I think also Sandra's story itself, it's so, it's so unique. She's gone from such a low point in her life to the woman that she is now. And she's... Um, if you... Look up, you know, videos of her. That's because there are videos of her talking about her life and giving interviews on YouTube. You can see like she's so strong, and the way she carries herself is so commendable. And that also really shines through in Sarah Krasnastien's writing. I would recommend this book to uh, readers who are interested in reading nonfiction, but are scared to because I think the way in this the language that's used in this book is really accessible and um, is written in a way it sort of reminds me like a fiction novel would be written because the author uses a lot of descriptive adjectives she sort of structures the chapters in a way that's super easy to follow if you're sort of interested in the topic and are a little bit curious as to what an unusual job entails, then you're going to get that and and a lot more from this book. This was The Trauma Cleaner, One Woman's Extraordinary Life and Death, Decay and Disaster by Sarah kresnes
0: Thanks so much to Winnie for coming on the podcast and recommending those two books. And keeping with our info about where you can find them, The Trauma Cleaner is published in the United States by St. Martins, and you can find eat first, talk later on websites like Book Depository. And it's time for our currently reading section of
1: this episode. So Jacqueline, what are you reading right now? So I am reading a fiction book at the moment, Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli. That's out in the US at the moment from Knopf. And I'm I'm just blown away by this structure and the kind of language and I read her nonfiction work recently, and I think there's so many parallels with how she talks about immigration and that U.S. experience specifically um, within that, and it informs so much of um, her fiction. So in this book, we're looking at a, a family that their marriage is a bit broken and they're kind of on this road trip of sorts on a sound recording project. And they're crossing the country, essentially. And as they're going, there's sort of ongoing discussions about, you know, very present immigration discussions in the U.S. So I'm finding it fascinating. And I, it's sort of told in parts through these storage boxes that each of the family members is bringing along on their road trip. So it's very unique structurally in that sense. But, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. That sounds amazing. I've never heard of a book structured around storage boxes before. Yeah, well, it kind of feeds into this recording project that they're doing um, and that they're like having to store, you know, cassettes and other books that they're bringing along on their trip. But yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. It's just such a unique way to tell a story, I think.
0: Man, I'm am, I am so looking forward to this one. And uh, Autumn talked about the story of my teeth uh, a couple of years ago on the podcast. And so she immediately snapped up the arc of this and <laughs> I think is also currently reading this. So I cannot wait to hear what you ah, both have to say about it. Interesting. It's yeah. It's everywhere. And what are you reading at the moment, Kendra? I am reading How Long Till Black Future Month by N.K. Jemisin. Uh, this is her Collection of short stories, and it's out from Orbit. In her introduction to this short story collection, she says that a lot of these stories were her just learning how to write and also experimenting with world building. And so I'm a few stories in, and it reads a little bit like her juvenilia. Like you can tell she's playing with things, figuring out how to tell a story. But I find this interesting because one of N.K. Jemison's strengths is that she's a marathoner, she's not a sprinter. So mm. she's at her best when she has a lot of room to expand her world and world build and different things. So I'm interesting to see her take on short stories even more in the second half of the collection.
1: Mm. I heard one of these stories is actually set in the same world as her Broken Earth trilogy books. Is that right?
0: I haven't gotten there, but I hope that's oh. true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I was watching someone else talking about this book recently and they were saying that, yeah, it's fascinating that she connects them in that way.
0: Because I know like the Inheritance trilogy has, uh, her very first trilogy has a short story like in the Omnibus edition. Mm-hmm. And I believe she did the same thing with the Broken Earth trilogy. So I bet those two stories are in the, in the collection. Yeah. Um, I'm currently yeah. listening to this on audio and it's narrated by an ensemble cast. Um, oh, cool. Which is very helpful because when you switch short stories, it's helpful when the narrator changes. So your brain registers that it's a different story.
1: Mm, that is helpful.
0: Yes, and I I'm really loving it, and um, also that cover.
1: It's gorgeous, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yes, and Nikki Drayden was cosplaying the cover the other day on Twitter, and I was like, "This is amazing." <laughs> All right. So that's our show. If you haven't yet already, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. And many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming one of our patrons, please visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com.
1: Join us next time where we'll be talking about Her Father's Daughter by Alice Pung and Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman. And in the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester and me at Six Minutes for Me. So thank you for listening to Reading Women.